millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In your area code, in front of your computer, on the plane, on the train, in your camera lens. I am Brandon Scoopy Robinson. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Scoop B. Instagram and Snapchat at Scoop underscore B. And make sure you subscribe to the Scoop B Radio Podcast, which is available on all platforms. iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn app, Stitcher app, as well as Spotify, or simply by visiting ScoopBRadio.com. 3.5 million streams last year and continuing to go strong. And on the line right now is a guy that you've probably seen his work, and now we're going to put the voice and the name with his work. It's none other than the NBA's senior photographer. It's Andrew D. Bernstein, who joins Scoopy Radio today. Sir, welcome to the program. This is Scoopy Radio. Oh, so great to be with you, Scoop. Uh, thanks for asking me to be on. Of course, man. You're part of culture, and for those who don't know, Andrew's been around the NBA shooting players for about 38 years. Is that, a, is that about correct? That is absolutely correct, my friend. It sounds frightening when you put it into that context. Um, and I don't know if I'm part of culture. I don't know what that means. But <laughs> I, I'm happy to be part of anything at this point 38 years in. So thank you for, for mentioning it. <laughs> well, of course, when I when I say culture, I, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, when you look at some of the photos that you've that you've shot, I mean, you're going all the way back to my literally my beginning and my entry point to to um, loving loving the NBA. You know, I fell in love with it in 1991. Uh, my stepfather is from the mm-hmm. west side of Chicago, and uh, introduced mm-hmm. me to the television screen with a bald head guy named Michael Jordan. And yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember that guy. <laughs> What was your earliest memory? He came in in 84, and it kind of took a while for people to catch him because you knew he was good. They had to get past the Pistons. What was your earliest recollection of Michael? Earliest recollection was how athletic he was. The first time I shot him, and I don't honestly remember the first game that I shot with him, but um, I just couldn't believe a guy could could jump like that. I mean, I you know, been shooting NBA for a few years at that point, and his reputation kind of preceded him, but to actually see him in person, um, and the way that he just conducted himself on the court, you know, his athleticism, um, he wasn't quite the physical specimen that he became, you know, a few years later when he started really working out religiously and um, really kind of you know, bulked up and became, you know, this kind of sort of statuesque character. But um, I just couldn't believe how athletic he was and how fast he was. It was amazing. You were the key photographer for the United States' Olympic national basketball team, uh, the 92 Dream Team, as 
Many know them mm-hmm. as Michael Jordan, uh, John Stockton, Karl Malone, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley. All I remember as a kid was, I don't know no Angola, but I know Angola's in trouble. That's what Charles Barkley said when they <laughs> played against Angola. <laughs> and they were in trouble. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. How old were you at that point? Well, that was 92, so I was... Uh... I was 20, let's see, how old was I? That was 24, 25, 26, something like that. A 24-year-old well, kid. Well, hold on, let's do the math. I was born in 58, so um, how many years is that? I, I don't even know. <laughs> I'm not a math student. We'll get back to that. But what no. I will ask is well, hold somebody, on. huh? No, well, let's hold on. So 88, I would have been 30, so add, I was 34. 34 years old. There you go. That's the age I am right now. <laughs> okay. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> when you look back at that, that dream team, uh, I mean, what was it like? It was like covering rock stars. It was literally like that, and you got it perfectly summed up. Um, you know, these guys were, were so revered um, as – not just basketball players, but as a group, they were, <clears throat> you know, no, the world had never seen that before in, in any sport, much less basketball, um, to have a collection of the top professional players, you know, representing the United States, um, going out there and, and doing what they do as a team, as a collective Um it was it was interesting because they uh from the from day one when the team assembled in San Diego for the training camp, it was obvious that one big thing had to happen and that was that these guys had to play as a team. Um you know, individually they were all amazing. But they had the perfect coach in, in Chuck Daly because Coach Daly really knew how to speak to these guys. He respected them, but he also knew how to get them to buy in on the team concept. And, you know, the old expression, leave your egos at the door kind of thing. Um, He didn't ask them really to leave their egos at the door, but to kind of put their egos together into one big pot, you know. And the mission was to, to gel as a team and go out, and uh, get that gold medal, and that's what they did. And um, I, I can't honestly remember any moment during the this, this seven or eight weeks I was with them, embedded with them, where there was really any kind of, um, you know, jockeying for the ball and, and uh, you know, who's who's the bigger dog and all that. There's no, none of that. Um, <clears throat> in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, it's quite the opposite. They... They, Coach Daly had to get them to play a little bit more selfishly individually because they were trying to pass too much, you know, or trying to get the other guys involved. Um, and it, it was a fascinating experience for me. It was really a once-in-a-lifetime as a photographer experience that I'm so glad that I had. Would you compare it to a seven-week NBA All-Star experience? Because, I mean, literally everybody <laughs> on that team was an all-star. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. That's a really great point. Um, <clears throat> I would say you're probably right. Um, it got a little weird because once we got to Monte Carlo, you know, we had training camp in San Diego. Then we went up to Portland for the Tournament of the Americas. And the crescendo of of what this team really was and what – it could accomplish really started to really show itself in Portland. Um, and once we got to Monte Carlo, then it was, like you said, it was like a rock show, you know, has come to town. Um, you're in Monte Carlo, you know, all the glitz and glamor of that. And uh, by the time we got to Barcelona, I mean, I remember when we pulled into the, the airport to the private terminal there was like hundreds of media waiting and there were fans behind barricades. And this is for a, an Olympic basketball team. You know, mm-hmm. this is not a head of state or the Pope or, 
you know, Michael Jackson or, you know. So it really kind of hit us, I think all of us, the players included, that, wow, this is really amazing. And they very smartly got the guys their own hotel in Barcelona, and the hotel really was just for USA Basketball. And the only unfortunate thing was that the guys were kind of sequestered in the hotel. They really couldn't go out. They couldn't wander the streets, although Barkley, you know, did his best to do that. John Stockton kind of stayed under the radar. But, you know, Michael couldn't do it. Magic couldn't do it. You know, the big guys, uh, Robinson and, and Ewing couldn't do it. But they made the best of it. You know, they, they played ping pong. They played cards. They hung out. They they had, you know, friends visit. They had dinners. I mean, it was really an incredible bonding experience that that these guys still talk about. You know, Magic mm-hmm. still talks about that Dream Team experience as one of the greatest experiences of his life and the relationships that that came out of that are lifelong relationships. So um, I feel the same way. You know, it's very fortunate. My dad came over there with me, and, you know, it was a great father-son experience for him to experience being around the team. And, uh, you know, the guys still ask me about my dad. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm curious for you. Um, I remember as a kid watching, like, various documentaries of from NBA Entertainment and just seeing, like, the shot of Michael, video of the, the shot of Michael just walking around Barcelona, yeah. and then they pan, I yeah. guess they widened the screen, and then you saw his Jumpman logo above. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah that was crazy, right? I, I mean, did did you were you kind of called in at times to do personal photo shoots with them, or like how does that work? Like, is that choreographed where guys are just walking around? Like, walk me through that because it's always that's always been fascinating to me. Well, that particular shoot I wasn't on. My friend okay. Matt Butler shot that. I don't. I think the guys from NBA Entertainment, the producer, um, somehow talked Michael into taking that walk and going to see that big mural. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wish I was on that shoot, but there were other ones that <laughs> that I did. Um, you know, I don't remember Michael going out much. I mean, he went out to play golf a lot when we were in, in uh, Monte Carlo. He had that probably the most beautiful golf course I, I'd ever seen at the top of this mountain in Monte Carlo. <clears throat> and I went out with him a few times when he played with uh, Coach Daly and some other people. Um, but, uh, you know, there's that famous story about John Stockton and, and his wife and kids walking the streets in Barcelona mm-hmm. and... You know, you've, yeah, I'm sure you've seen the video, and the kid comes up to him and busts it up. The dream team is staying in the hotel, and and his little kid points to the T-shirt and he says, "Well, that's my daddy. He's on the dream team." <laughs> <laughs> but I think John was really the only guy who could get away with that. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Scoopy ready on the line. But but I've never heard any of the guys really ever talk negatively about the fact that they you know, couldn't go out and they were sequestered and, uh, you know, they took the basketball part of it very seriously and they were playing games every other day and the rest of the time they were just trying to enjoy being together. You know, I spoke to Tim Thomas, retiring to be a player, Tim Thomas recently. And sure. um, he told yeah. me. Really good guy, fir- by the way. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. He told me yeah. um, that. He told me about the first time that he remembers meeting Michael Jordan when he was in high school. He was really right. close with Scottie Pippen. Yeah. And he said that the Bulls were playing mm-hmm. the Knicks. And so they stayed at this hotel by Central Park. And so Scottie and his agent brought him in. And he says, all of a sudden, as he's in this hotel, there's like a window with all these people like peeking in trying to see Michael. All of a sudden, when Michael's getting ready to walk out, it's like 10 security guys that just came out of nowhere. And they were all walking with him. Oh, yeah. As they were good in the car. Yeah. And he said that that experience yeah. as a 17, yeah. 18 year old kid just never left him. He said, the, he said it was like Michael yeah. Jackson. He saw, yeah. he said Magic, Isaiah, and Michael were the guys that had that. It was just an air about them that yeah. was just unmatched. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now, you know, you, you, put, you go fast forward to today, and, you know, I saw that with Kobe. I saw it with Shaq. I see it with LeBron. Um, you see it with Steph Curry. 
I mean, as much as these guys want to have a normal life, they really can't. Um, mm-hmm. They recognize, I mean, of course, in today, the social media age, um, it's impossible. I mean, I can't even imagine LeBron, like, going out to the movies with his wife and his kids, you know, just like a normal person, um, without, you know, having some security, some semblance of protection, you know, um, it's just the nature of the times we live in. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate if you think about it, but yet, you know, it's a pretty amazing thing that you can be that famous and that worldwide that, that you that you have to have that kind of layer of security around you. You as a photographer, could you imagine starting your career now versus back then when you started? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, Scoop, because the answer to that is yes and no, because I, I, can't, I couldn't start, I couldn't have the career that I've had uh, the same way that my career progressed starting back in the early 80s now because, A, the marketplace is just so saturated right now <clears throat> with a lot of photographers and a lot of people who think they're photographers or want to be photographers. But, but on the back side of that, the flip side of that is that there's a lot more opportunity now as a photographer um, with social media and with these the players wanting to have their entire careers and their lives and their endorsements and everything else documented. So I I try not to encourage. You know, it's interesting because I have interns and I teach and and I'm around young people a lot and aspiring photographers, and I I try to encourage their ambition, but I don't I don't encourage them to be like me because I'm a dinosaur. What I do is is fading out and at some point pretty soon it's going to kind of go away doesn't mean that the need for really good photographers really really great documentarians won't still exist i think it actually exists more now than it ever has <clears throat> but people today have to realize that they have to take different avenues into business and to make it a career than i did my my career path was based on getting published, was based on getting credentials so I could go to any sporting event I could get my hands on to build my portfolio so that I could get a magazine assignment. You know, that was the plum. <clears throat> and be hired, God willing, by a team or a league or a venue or an endorsement, you know, a, a product corporate sponsor, whatever. It's different because all those avenues have kind of dried up. You know, there aren't as many publications, even close to as many publications, printed publications out there than there was. You know, Sports Illustrated is hanging on by a thread where that was the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Uh, my, My dream as a young photographer in college and coming out of college was to get A, published in Sports Illustrated and B, God willing, at some point, get the cover of Sports Illustrated. I mean, that was like the holy grail. Um, now it's all about engagement, you know, and eyeballs and and likes and followers and all that stuff, which is fine, and things things change. Um, so I hope that answered your question. I, I can't see having the same career starting today that I had, but... I think it's possible to have a really successful career if you're willing to embrace the new media and what's going on in the marketplace now. You're a photographer. I'm a journalist. And you kind of hit something on the head when you said that everybody wants to be a photographer. And then now you have people who consider celebrity photographers or celebrity journalists. But maybe the work is not there. And I I think that, you know, that ties into hip-hop. There's a lot of guys that have SoundCloud accounts, but... They're not really, if they say in hip hop, they're not spitting bars. They're not, you know, it's not, it's nothing finite. Um, I guess my question for you is, okay, before you started the NBA, what did you do to hone your craft? Well, another great question, Scoop. I, um, 
I got the bug for photography when I was 14. My dad bought me a camera. I was in high school. <clears throat> my friend, a very good friend of mine, had a dark room in his basement. You know, we lived in Brooklyn. And I really saw the magic of photography happen in that dark room. You know, it's one thing to take the picture, but then to see it actually materialize in front of your eyes under that, you know, pale yellow light of the dark room it was, it was truly magical. I mean, it, I, I can picture it now, you know, 40-something years later. Um, and I went to a big high school. I was able to do a lot of photography in high school. Um, not not really sports, but I was doing other stuff. I was doing featurey stuff and theatrical presentations and all kinds of stuff. And went to the University of Massachusetts, which was a big college, and they had a daily newspaper, which I gravitated towards and worked uh, a lot uh, at that newspaper. I became the assistant photo editor my freshman year. But I wasn't learning really the craft of photography, the science per se of photography. Uh, it was kind of like learning on the job, which was fine and great. But I felt like something really had to get ramped up, you know, to make a career out of it. <clears throat> and I transferred to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. They're a very um, hardcore advertising, commercial-oriented school, uh, car photography, um, fashion. Photojournalism was not really on their radar screen, but I knew that I could get the technical training that I needed and really understand the science of photography. Um, I was pretty much discouraged from being a sports photographer while I was at Art Center. Uh, wow. Which only fueled me. Yeah, which only fueled me more because I'm a Brooklyn guy. And, you know, you can't <laughs> tell a Brooklyn guy not to do something when, you know, it goes, has the opposite effect. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the good news was that I, I had two teachers who really believed in me and saw that I had something. You know, I I had the desire and the will and... That's one thing, but they saw something, you know, in my eye, you know, in my talent and really pushed me and didn't let me get discouraged despite what the school itself was trying to push me towards. And one of my teachers um, introduced me to a staff photographer from Sports Illustrated and I worked on a shoot with him and I, I just fell in love with that whole life, you know, the whole being on location and going from one sporting event to the other and everything from, you know, football games to baseball to indoor hockey and basketball and traveling and equipment and shipping the film and everything that had to do with it. And I, through that job, I was able to learn, and I was still in school at the same time, working almost full time for Sports Illustrated as an assistant. But I was able to learn the technique of lighting these indoor arenas for basketball and hockey with these gigantic strobe units, these big flashes. And that was a very specialized technique that only really Sports Illustrated was doing. There was only a handful of people in the country who knew how to do it. Hmm. And I saw an opportunity there. I really saw that I could take my real love and desire to be a sports photographer and through this technique that I learned that very few people did know, I was able to produce some pretty good photography, I thought. Um, those days it was pretty easy to get into a place like the Forum or another arena and kind of trade pictures for access, you know, for a credential or being able to put strobes in or whatever. And it caught the eye of the people at the Forum, the Lakers and, and Kings, and that when the NBA came to town in 83 for the All-Star Game. Um, I was just kind of getting my feet wet as a young sports photographer. And they hired me to be their official photographer for All-Star, that All-Star Game. It wasn't a weekend. It was just a game in 83. Right. And that's where, yeah, and that's where everything just took off. You know, I was in the right place at the right time. I had the right kind of um, temperament. Uh, I had a lot of um, will and a lot of energy and I wanted to make it in the business. Um, shortly after that, I became the Dodgers team photographer in 84. And, you know, my career really took off. You know, Showtime, the Showtime era was in full swing, Lakers-Celtics rivalry. 
And uh, lo and behold, in 85, I got that first Sports Illustrated cover, which really affirmed to me that I had made it in the business, that I deserved, not that I had made it per se, but that I deserved to be there, you know, that I... They can't take that cover away from me. You know what I mean? It's out there mm-hmm. on every newsstand in the country. And it was really the great. it remains the greatest moment of my career was when, A, when I heard that I got the cover, and mm. B, when I actually saw that cover on the newsstand, it just blew my mind. <laughs> Honestly. That, that, that's, that's a once-in-a-lifetime feeling, Andrew D. Bernstein, on this yeah. radio podcast, and be a photographer. How many copies did you actually buy? For yourself, I pro- you know that's a great question. I probably bought like thirty, honestly, um, and I had to go to a few different newsstands to get it. Um, sure. There's a very famous newsstand in in uh, Hollywood. I think it's still there. Um, it's like where you go to get every great magazine or newspaper in the world, and uh, I knew that they they got. I used to go there literally go there every Tuesday morning when Sports Illustrated would first come out. It was like the first newsstand in the in L.A. that would have the magazine. And when I started to get some pictures published in there, you know, that's where I would go to get the magazine before it would come in my, uh, in my mailbox a couple of days later. <clears throat> and I went there, and, and they had, I don't know, maybe they had 10 or 12 copies, and I bought them all, and I tried to find another newsstand, you know, Send them to everybody in my family, and uh, I still have probably five or six of those copies. Um, it was such a great moment. Andrew D. Bernstein on the Scoopy Radio podcast. You yourself have a podcast called Legends of Sport with Andrew D. Bernstein, and I noticed that you had Gary Vitti on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Gary told me Scoopy Radio that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the best. NBA player or best athlete to play, period. And he put him above Michael. Wow, that's interesting. Um, and he he actually think, put him yeah. on Tom Brady level. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, Kareem played, what, 22 years? Is that right? About that, yeah. Um, never had a major injury. Um, played a very physical brand of basketball you know you can imagine the guys he was playing against Robert Parrish Artis Gilmore Nate Thurman I mean he played against uh didn't he play against Wilt back in the day he did he was rookie um I don't know if he ever played against Bill Russell but it it was a lot the game was a lot different a lot more physical back in those days especially the center position um and he took incredible care of himself uh, was a, was a, a huge yoga aficionado before I, I think anyone else even knew what yoga was, you know. <laughs> um, and I would probably agree with Gary on that. I mean, who would know better than Gary, first of all, because, you know, Gary was so close and intimately involved with these guys, tr- conditioning and training and recovery and rehab and everything. Um, Kareem was, was a, an interesting dude, man. He... Uh, he probably could have played 30 years, I think, <laughs> if he really wanted to. A few players have said that to me about Vince Carter, that he could play another 10 yeah. years. <laughs> that, which is which is crazy when you think about how Vince played his entire career above the rim, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's different if you're, you know, I don't want to denigrate anybody in their game, but it's different if you're like a Steph Curry or you're, you know, James Harden, or you're, you know, mostly, a, you know, a shooter, as opposed to somebody who is like, you know, life on the line every time they go to the basket. I mean, that's, you know, Kobe, I think, kind of figured that out about two thirds of the way into his career that he just couldn't be dunking five or six times, ten times a game. Um, at some point, you know, he's just going to get hammered. And I think as he got older and wiser, he kind of brought the game a little bit more down to earth, um, which Vince did too. I mean, you know, Vince, I think by the time he, Toronto and he, he became a more well-rounded player. Um, but still to see him dunk now at what, 41, <laughs> almost 42. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. 
Andrew, help me understand something. Um, you talked about the optics and you talked about um, just social media, likes, engagement, and more. One thing that has really taken off, I'd say, in the last five to eight years is the emphasis on sneakers. Um, you have various <laughs> Instagram accounts. One of my favorite photographers who I feel doesn't get the credit he deserves is a guy named Gemini Keys, um, who's often been around the Nets and the Knicks. He's New York-based. Do yeah. you think that you guys missed the boat early on? I mean, your generation of photographers as far as sneakers, why is that such a big thing now? Well, no, I wouldn't say we missed the boat because we were very conscious of it. Um, you know, when I first started, guys were sort of, I think they were still wearing Chuck Taylors. I don't know. But, um, you know, the whole thing with Magic and Bird wearing the uh, the Converse weapons, mm-hmm. um, that was huge. When James Worthy got that New Balance contract, that $1 million deal that was, like, earth-shattering, never been done before, Um and then, of course, Michael just blew it up. I mean, just <laughs> literally blew up the entire that entire genre. I mean, he created it, and it lives on to this day. Uh, <clears throat> and um, we were very conscious of of the shoes, not as much today as we are today. I mean, one of one of our marching orders, us as NBA photographers, is to document the shoes every single team that these guys are wearing. Um, and not just, you know, your top guys. I mean, you're talking about like every player who walks on the court, if they're wearing a shoe that is different or new, uh, we got to take pictures of it. And that extends to the WNBA as well. I mean, this mm-hmm. year, I think more than in years past, um, you started seeing the women really individualizing themselves with with their own individual shoe and and designs and uh i love it i think it's great um i spent a lot of time shooting shoes <laughs> i mean you know during free throws during warm-ups um whenever and uh you know you got guys like pj tucker who changes shoes at halftime so you got to be conscious of that you know that He's going to come out in the third quarter with a different pair of shoes that he wore in the first half. Um, and people want to see that. I mean, as you know, there's how many, God knows how many Instagram sites there are just about shoes. Um, we just went through this at Media Day where I think there was more time spent, not by me, but other photographers there shooting these guys' shoes during Media Day than with than shooting their faces. <laughs> Help me understand something. Um, Michael Jordan wore the Jordan 13s in the 98 finals um, when they played the Utah Jazz. He switched into the Jordan 14s. <laughs> yes. I'm assuming you were at that game. Did you make a conscious decision of that at that point, or was it later when you went through your pictures that he, that he switched his shoes? When did you realize it? Oh, I, I don't even realize it now until you brought it up. I have wow. no idea about that. No idea. Yeah. He wore a pair of yeah. Jordan 13s, right? They were black and red. If I'm not mistaken, when he at some point between halftime and then, he switched to the Jordan 14s. The Jordan 14s are made after Ferraris. Oh, okay. okay. Those were supposed to come you. out the next I, I, year. Hmm? And which game, which game was that of the finals? This was when he hit the final shot against Brian Russell. Get out of here. I got to check that out. Okay. I believe he wore, in that game, he wore two different shoes. You know, it's funny because in this day and age, I would be getting tech. My phone would be blowing up um, courtside with, with, like, somebody from the office, NBA Photos, noticing that on TV or somebody had mentioned it, you know, commentator during the broadcast or whatever. You know, I might not be conscious of it, but I should be, but somebody would definitely be telling me about it, you know, during the game. Back then, um, nobody did that. No, it's a different era. Yeah. You co-authored a book with Phil Jackson. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the book 
if I'm not mistaken, chronologized um, the the Lakers uh, in particular. Yeah. Um, yep. You guys looked at the yep. championship season, 2009-2010 championship season, um, and right. it was called Journey to the Ring, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. What was it like being around? I know Jack McCallum as a writer has chronicled like the the um, the Phoenix Suns, if I'm not mistaken, years ago. You as a photographer, yeah. you've yeah. been around Shaq, you've been around mm-hmm. Kobe in the past, but Shaq wasn't on the team at that point. It was around Kobe. What differences did you right. see in Kobe then that that vary from maybe uh, the Shaq and Kobe years? Well, what's interesting about that project was that Phil, after the 2009 championship, if you remember, the Lakers win the championship against Orlando, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Phil announced that the following season was going to be his last year. So, you know, Phil and I had had really forged a really great working relationship, a friendship. There's a lot of mutual respect there. Obviously, I had respect for him, but I felt like he had a lot of respect for me and what I did and what I had accomplished over the years. Um, So I went to him during the summer, and I I made a suggestion. I said, so, Coach, you know, this is going to be your last year. I would love to document your journey, you know, from training camp to whenever the season ends. You know, you're walking off into the sunset. Um, And he looked at me with that typical Phil Jackson kind of skeptical look. And he said, well, I think you're going to be disappointed. I said, why? I said, well, he said, because I don't do a lot. (laughs) You know, I have a pretty regimented life, you know, once the season starts. But if you want to do it, I will let you in and, just tell me what you want to do and where you want to be, and I'll make it happen. So, long story short, the preseason starts, you know, opening a training camp, media day. I start shooting. I'm, I'm really concentrating more on Phil and what he's doing. And totally honest with you, Scoop, like two weeks in, I'm looking at what I shot, and it's all starting to look the same. <laughs> and I... I went to Phil and I said, Coach, I said, I got to tell you, man, I love you, but you're right. <laughs> I said, I can't see a book here. And he looked at me and he laughed. He goes, I told you. Um, I said, so could I kind of change change gears here and, and do the book about the journey of the team? And I had already mm. discussed it with the publisher because the, publish, the publisher had committed to doing this book about Phil. But then I had to talk to the publisher and say if I, you know, if Phil's okay with it and then the team, the organization is okay with it, I'd like to change gears, you know, and do it about the journey of the team. <clears throat> and the publisher kind of went out on a limb because obviously we didn't know how the season was going to end. You know, the, they're the defending champs, but the season could end. They might not make the playoffs. They could get bounced in the first round. They could lose in the finals, whatever. Um, and the publisher committed. They said, yes, we'll, we'll do the book, you know, win, lose, draw, it doesn't matter. Um, Phil and I decided to do it in black and white because it was, that was kind of near and dear to our hearts as kind of old guys, but also <laughs> kind of, um, aficionados of, of, you know, old school documentary photography. And then, you know, I embedded myself with the team. Um, something Phil made very clear from the beginning when we changed gears about it. He said, he said, I know Kobe's the star, but I don't want this book to be about Kobe. And I said, hmm. Phil, I totally agree with you. This book is about the team. Kobe is a part of the team. He's obviously a huge part of the team. And if you look at the book, Kobe obviously is in the book and is represented on the book, and those are his hands holding the trophy on the cover of the book. But the book is not about Kobe Bryant, right? That came later, you know, when Kobe and I did our book together. Um, And Kobe was totally cool with that. He knew that this was a, you know, I, I don't think we even had to discuss it, that this was about Andy documenting the team and the journey of the team. So I spent a lot of time with guys like Powell and, and Ron Artest at the time. I think it was still Ron Artest. But I don't think he was then. No. Um, and Phil was very, very uh, adamant about having every single guy represented in the book to the point where we got to the final edit of the book 
and he was writing Phil essentially wrote the long he wrote the captions he wrote the the long intros to each chapter um he wrote every word in the book and we got to the final edit of the book and um we're just about to send the book to the publisher. I remember this was like late July. And he calls me. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right? I was back east. He was in Montana. I was trying to get eke out a vacation with my family. He's like on Martha's Vineyard, I remember. It's 4 mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning. The phone rings. It's Phil Jackson. He goes, <laughs> Andy, there's no pictures of Josh Powell in this book. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, we cannot publish this book without a picture of Josh Powell. Do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> okay, coach, no problem. <laughs> I'll figure it out, you know. And I know, I, I, I knew. I was very conscious while I was shooting the for the book that, you know, I was shooting every guy in some way, shape, or form. Whether it was on the plane, it was getting off the plane, it was in the training room, it was walking through the hotel, warming up for the game. You know, Josh didn't play a lot, so there wasn't really much action on him. And the next morning, I had to call NBA Photos and and like beg one of the guys who was helping edit. So you got to go through, look through everything again because we need a Josh Powell picture. And he found a great a great picture of Josh <laughs> during um, it was like a workout or something on a, on an off day, and we put it in the book, you know. But that shows you how Phil was so um, intimately involved. You know, it wasn't just he's just going to write a few things and we're going to come out with a book. No, he wanted this book to be, you know, a true collaboration and to be his vision as well. And that's, that's what I was most proud of about the end result of the book. The fact that they won the championship and the book ends with, you know, the parade, Pal Gasol, I think on the, on the bus at the parade um, was the last picture. And, uh, you know, really was the crowning glory of that book. But the book would have been, I would have been fine with the book if it didn't end with the championship, I think. But it was really a great bonus that it did. And that set the table for Kobe and I to do our book together, you know, um, three or four years later when we started that process. Because, you know, Kobe obviously knew how well Phil and I had worked together. The book actually did pretty well, the Journey to the Ring book. And Kobe had a story to tell, and my photos helped to support that story. So... Um, I've been so fortunate to have worked with both of those guys on these one-on-one projects that you know, I can't imagine really ever doing it again <laughs> because um, it was such a labor of love. Who was more quirky? Were you getting 4 a.m. phone calls from Kobe like Phil, or what was the difference? Well, Kobe was, he, Kobe was very um, hands-on. Uh, he knew exactly what he wanted to get across in this book. He wanted people to to see really what made the Mamba tick, what made him the Black Mamba. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was such a uh, mysterious, mythic kind of persona that he adopted. Um, and I was the only one who got to see the sort of inner workings of what made him tick. You know, I was the only person really ever privy to his private workouts and to his uh, recovery from his injuries and um, certain things he did off the court um, that no one else really, even his teammates didn't see. And there was so much material there um, that needed to get out, you know, as a photographer, I just needed that to get out to the world for people to see that. And it helped, that it supported the story he wanted to tell about his craft and his process. So it was a great, I think it was a great collaboration, a great marriage between the two of us. And, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't quirky. He was very, um, he was very specific. I mean, Kobe was incredibly specific. We'd have meetings where we would talk about, and this, this actually happened where we would sit, and talk about, for example, the guys who played him the toughest on defense, right? Mm-hmm. There's about four or five guys. Tony Allen, Raja Bell, of course, Bruce Bowen, I think probably was one of his biggest nemesis. Um, and he would, Kobe would describe a moment in the game. Like, do you remember that time in the third quarter 
of Game 5 of the Western Conference Finals. We're playing the Spurs, and I made that move against Bruce baseline, and he took the bait, and I went left and dunked it. And I'm like, uh, sure, okay. Yeah, I'm gonna... <laughs> and he says, you have a picture of that, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, uh, maybe I do. And lo and behold, I mean, most of the time I was able to find either the picture of the moment or at least a picture that spoke to what he wanted to get across, you know. And uh, that was the challenge for me and for the great people at NBA Photos who helped me edit the book that we had to mine. And keep in mind that half of Kobe's career happened in the pre-digital era. So we're dealing with film that has been, you know, cataloged and sitting in an archive back in New Jersey that people actually, myself, had to go and into the archive and actually find pieces of film not like you go on Getty Images and you Google, you know, Kobe Bryant, <laughs> you know, Bruce Bowen, and and 75 images come up. You know, you have to actually go and find those pictures. So it was a challenge, but it was a great challenge, and we, we met the challenge. I don't think – there probably maybe a handful of things that I had to go back and say, you know, I just, I just don't have it. I mean, we – you know uh, – but we worked around it, and he uh, I think he was very happy with the book and the way it came out. Andy, you're the director of photography for Staples Center, Nokia Theater, L.A. Live, uh, since the building's ribbon cuttings in 1997, or excuse me, 1999, and then again in 2007. Um, LeBron James said at Media Day um, that the real winner of uh, the NBA free agency was Staples Center. Why? Because... <laughs> the Lakers got Kawhi Leonard as well as Paul George, and oh, excuse me, the Clippers got Kawhi Leonard yep. as well as Paul George, and yep. the Lakers, you know, already had LeBron right. and have Anthony Davis. I think you're kind mm-hmm. of an expert on Lakers sell or and, and Clippers talk, uh, particularly because mm-hmm. um, you were around the Showtime era. What do you think this yep. season is going to be like with both Clippers and Lakers actually being damn good on paper? Well, I think LeBron is is absolutely right, and it couldn't happen at a better time. This is the 20th anniversary of Staples Center, believe it or not. opened in October of 99. Mm -hmm. And um, I have been shooting the Clippers um, as their team photographer since the day they moved from San Diego in 1984, the 84-85 season. Um, So I am really, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I think I'm really the only bridge between both franchises for all of this period that the Clippers have been in L.A. and they've been playing together in Staples for the last 20 years. Um, So for me to have both teams relevant and competitive at the same time, because, you know, the Lakers for years were obviously the much better team than the Clippers had their moment, you know, the last, whatever number of years and now the Lakers are back and the Clippers are, are, are right there. I mean, I honestly feel like my career wouldn't be complete until I saw a Clipper banner hanging in Staples. <laughs> I, I mean, what a moment that would be. And then the only thing I equate that to scoop is, is, is the LA Kings winning their Stanley cup, their first Stanley cup on Staples Center ice in 2012. And it was the the most emotional moment, one of the most emotional moments I've ever had as um, as a sports fan, as a photographer. Uh, I'm a huge, long-time hockey fan growing up in New York. I, I've been shooting the Kings longer than any team I've been shooting in L.A. since I started shooting the Kings in 1978. Uh, became that team photographer at some point, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s and have been their team photographer ever since. And none of us thought in our lifetime we would see the L.A. Kings, you know, hoist the Stanley Cup. It just was one of those things. It's like the Clippers, you know, no one ever thought the Clippers would be competing for a championship. And there we there we all were, you know, 2012, and Dustin Brown is in that Stanley Cup. It was just a mind-blowing moment. And... um what a moment it'll be, you know, if the Clippers can can do that at some point. You know, they they certainly have assembled the squad for it. So, 
it'll be super fun to see these guys, these two teams go up against each other and have it be, you know, important and relevant. Help me understand something. Opening night, Lakers, Clippers. Clippers are the home team. How do you balance the two? Yeah. <laughs> like, are you, are, you know, are it's you funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's such a great question. And, um, every year that they have played together in Staples and they, you know, they play each other five times a year and, uh, you know, they, they go back and forth as to who's the home team and whose court is down and whose fan base it is and, and all that stuff. I've always I've tried to get the perfect picture that just shows these two guys, these two teams playing each other in the same building, and it's impossible to to get that like in the hallway. You know, their their locker rooms are very much separated. One's at one end of the hallway, one's at the other. They don't cross each other. You know, the players when they come out, um, it's really only kind of like the captains' meeting before the game where you can sort of get a taste of, uh, you know, the two teams playing in the same building. But um, for me personally, I just, I I don't really have a favorite either way. I just want to see a great game. I really do. And I'm happy for that group of fans. If, it, if it's a Laker home game or it's a Clipper home game, I'm happy for that group of fans that they're getting to see basketball at that level of these two teams playing each other um, and really competing. I mean, it has never been a time. It was, we were really close a few years ago when these guys could have played each other in, I believe, the conference finals, and the Clippers felt just short of making that. But, you know, imagine a conference final between these two teams. Uh, that would just be mind-blowing. You brought in a lot of Lakers and Clippers knowledge. Um is there a prediction? Do you see the Clippers winning the finals? Do you see the Lakers winning the finals? You know, I can't make a prediction because the, I think we saw last year with LeBron that he, that these guys have to stay healthy. You know, there was so much expectation from the Lakers last year when LeBron came, and rightly so. I mean, you got in, you know, arguably the best player in the world coming on your team. Um, and then he goes down for, what, 17 games, and, you know, the wheels come off. So, God willing, both teams will stay healthy. Um, their top guys will stay healthy. And I don't think there's really any way to predict anything. Um, I think what's great is that the league is kind of wide open right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's no clear favorite in either conference. Um, and... It's been a long time since we've had that, you know, with the Warriors being so dominant and then, of course, the Cavs being so dominant. We could just keep going backwards in time. But honestly, can't really remember the last time. Maybe you got to go way back to, like, the Dallas-Cleveland uh, final or something where there was no clear-cut kind of dominant team or a couple of teams out there. I think it's it's a very um, – the league is, is – you know, there's a lot of parity going on in the league. There's a, some really, really good teams out there that, uh, you know, they catch fire and other factors happening with other teams that, you know, we don't want to ever see anybody get injured or whatever. But, you know, you could see a team come out of nowhere and uh, be competing for a championship. Andrew, I literally have two more questions. Number one, yeah. your least favorite photo that you took that got the most attention and you didn't understand it. Why that happened? My least favorite photo. Wow. That's That's a crazy question, man. Um, that's funny. You know, Shaq had this way of, um, about him that when, whenever he would see a person, he immediately would pick them up. Right. <laughs> And it was such it was such a weird thing. Like he he just had this need to pick people up all the time. So he would see, like he picked up Hakeem Olajuwon, you know, guy seven foot whatever, and he just picks him up like a baby. He picked up Adam Silver, the commissioner. And so we're, one one year we're in um, I'm in Hawaii with the Lakers for training camp, and Magic happened to be there. And Magic, I'm doing a photo shoot with Shaq on a backdrop. And Magic just passes by, and Shaq goes, 
He goes, Magic, come over here, man. I need to talk to you about something. And he looked, Shaq looks at me and he goes, he goes, he says, get ready. And I said, all right. And he, Magic walks fine. He just picks him up. I mean, this is Magic Johnson. And I clicked the picture and it was funny. I didn't think much of it, but that picture kind of has a life of its own out there. So many people remember that picture. It's been reproduced a gazillion times. You know, it's, it's a funny picture. Magic loves it. He Magic had me make a print for him and frame it, you know. So <laughs> I wouldn't say that was my least favorite picture, but it's one of those head scratchers that like, wow, you know, who knew that that was going to have a life of its own after I took it? Last question. Favorite picture mm-hmm. you've ever taken in your NBA stead? Well, let me throw that back at you, Scoop. You tell me which is your four favorite pictures of mine, and I'll, maybe we could we could rank them from there. Um, I'm going to be very honest with you, Angel. There is something very underrated. Mm-hmm about the Scotty Pippen pictures that you've taken. Um, and for, and for <laughs> okay, me, okay. the reason why I like your Scotty uh-huh. Pippen, what'd you say? No, I'm interested by that. No one's ever said that. The reason why I like your Scotty Pippen pictures is because they add some level of detail. Um, just to give you a point of uh-huh. reference, um, my family owned a sneaker store in Harlem and in the 80s and mm-hmm. the 90s. And so for me, Although my stepfather introduced me to basketball, I got the culture and the understanding of just photos, the business of hoops, sneakers, and more at that young age. I rang a cash register when I was six years old. That was my first job. And so I would look at pictures of Rex Chapman. I would look at pictures of George Gervin. I would look at pictures of Derek Coleman, Rod Strickland, and more. And to me, Scottie Pippen was always fascinating because it was almost like when he came into the league, he wore the balances, and then he ended up switching to Nike. And when he and Michael came, you figure, okay, Air Jordan was the bomb. Scotty has to have, you know, a, a pair of, of Nikes to kind of complement that whole Nike, you know, the whole Nike look. And so when I look through some of yeah. your pictures, I just look at how much detail. I don't know if it was intentional, but how much attention to Scotty's game was was detailed, not just in, in his game, but also in his in his in his footwear. You know, I look at the the the, the, the uh, <laughs> The Nike, the Nike uh, sneakers that Scotty wore with the big air bubble. It, it, you perfectly um, paid attention to detail with Scotty. So for me, growing up, I used to see pictures you did with Scotty, and I liked them. Everybody pays attention to Michael. Everybody knows Michael is Michael, but how you paid attention to, to Scotty to me was interesting. And you posted a picture yeah. of Scotty the other day. Uh huh. And I liked it, and it just took me back to my childhood. So for me, photos that you took taken of <laughs> Scotty Pippen have always stood out. Well, that's that's so amazing for you to say all that. And I would never have realized that without you saying it, because I'm, I'm just out there doing what I got to do. But the fact that you are getting so much from my photos that I didn't consciously intend on doing really um, is kind of a humbling thing. Um, you know, people like to point to Mike Jordan holding the trophy, crying with his dad next to him, or Magic and Bird intertwined, or, uh, I don't know, Kobe, you know, the one of Kobe in the ice where he's kind of meditating, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's, you know, some pretty well-known pictures out there, and I'm super grateful that I was able to take them. But for you to be able to point to something that speaks to you that is that you know that's so gratifying as a photographer because all we want to do as photographers is elicit an emotional response that really is the goal of photography is to elicit an emotional response from whoever is looking at the photograph that we took or created and for you to speak so eloquently about the emotion that you feel from that particular picture or any picture of Scottie Pippen, a player that you revered and loved. And, you know, it's just, it's like mission accomplished yeah. <laughs> for me as a photographer because, because yeah. um, that's, that's all I care about. You know, I mean, you could be an Isaiah Thomas fan. You could be a Vince Carter fan. You could be Kobe fan, um, you know, an AI fan, uh, LeBron doesn't matter. Um, you know, Steph Curry, any of these guys, 
But if my picture is is making you feel something, you know, either you're remembering being at that game where that picture was shot, or you remember mm-hmm. watching it on TV with your dad, or you emulated that guy's game in your game on the playground, you know, and, and that that picture kind of helped you. You know, Kobe spoke about that in, in relation to my pictures, that as a kid, a teenager, he was using my pictures that he would see of, you know, Jordan and, and Clyde Drexler and, you know, some of the greats that he admired so much, <clears throat> Magic, that he would would sort of emulate or kind of try to imitate in his own game things that he saw in the pictures that I took of these guys. I mean, that's the most humbling, like, complimentary thing you could possibly say to a photographer. For sure. So, and, yeah. And I'll add, um, so I'm looking at your Instagram now. I'm going to tell you a crazy story. So uh-huh. you have a picture um, of Dominique Wilkins ducking on somebody on the Clippers. He has a leather. <laughs> okay. He has a leather, um, a leather uh, knee pad on. And right, the guy. I don't know who this guy is. Number eighteen on the Clippers. I'm I'm imagining it's it's the San Diego Clippers. But Dominique Wilkins has on the red Clippers jersey. And he's got a mm-hmm. pair of Brooks sneakers on. So when I was a kid, yeah. Dominique Wilkins yeah. did an appearance at my family sneaker store. And in my family <laughs> sneaker store as a yeah. baby, there's a picture of my parents holding me. Or excuse me, of Dominique Wilkins holding me. That picture that yeah. you have of Dominique Wilkins, yeah. he signed it for me as yeah. a kid. And it says to Brandon, Dominique Wilkins. Get out of here. That's crazy. What a great story. I love that. So it's like, yeah. I didn't know you took that picture. But as I was scrolling through your Instagram, yeah. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> that's so funny. Well, I, I'll, I'll go I'll go one better with you. I mean, that's a great story. I don't want to say better, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a crazy story. For sure. Um, Larry, Nan- Larry Nance Jr. was drafted by the Lakers, right? Mm-hmm. And I meet Larry, super nice guy. You know, I get to know him a little bit during training camp. And we're at a preseason game, and I'm in the locker room, and I, I pull up this the picture that I shot of his dad uh, with the winning dunk in the 83, I'm sorry, the 84 dunk contest, right? Um, mm-hmm. When his dad was playing for Phoenix. And Larry looks at the picture, and he goes, uh, he goes, wow, that is such a great picture. We had that, we still have that picture hanging in our house, and... Uh, he says, he says, where'd you get that picture? Oh, I no. Said, where'd I get the picture? <laughs> I said, I took the, I said, Larry, I took the picture. And he looks at me with this, this like dumbfounded look. He goes, how old are you, man? <laughs> I like, let me put it this way, dude. I'm older than your dad. <laughs> wow. And from that moment on, Larry, Larry and I just joke so much about it to the point where Larry had, and if you go way back in my Instagram, like, you know, a couple of years, you'll see it. But he had a, he had a great dunk that I shot through the glass of the backboard and I put it side by side with that photo. And I, you know, I put like father, like son in the caption and, um, I showed it to Larry and then I showed it to his dad because his dad was coming to a lot of games when Larry was at the Lakers mm-hmm. and, uh, got a good, really good laugh out of it. And then so fast forward to the dunk contest that year, right? Larry's mm-hmm. in the dunk contest with his dad helping him in the dunk contest. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> and, Andrew, that is why I said at the beginning of the conversation, you are part of the culture. You have shaped people's lives. <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have created memories. Who would have known when you followed me on Instagram and I followed you back, I'd be on the podcast with you and looking through your Instagram, seeing a photo, and that took me back to memory. You need to give yourself more credit. You are yeah. part of culture. You have documented culture. Well, that's important. Thank you. I appreciate that scoop, and uh, you know that keeps me motivated. I mean, I love what I do. I love the fact that I'm, you know, still out there. The NBA still puts me out there, and depends on me, you know, out here in the West Coast. And uh, I take my work very seriously, but I also recognize that uh, I'm. I'm incredibly grateful and blessed to 
still do what I do and be around these amazing athletes and every game is fun and I look forward to it. I can't wait for the season to start already. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I'll be seeing you soon, man. Thank you so much for your time and you are officially off the hot seat. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Scoop. Hey, great, great questions. Really great talking hoops with you, man. And uh, I hope to see you in person at some point down the road. So we'll see each other. You know, you'll be in L.A. Yes, sir. Okay. Scoopy Radio. Overtime. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend the Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.